It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's Living the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. It has been a heavy week of news and things are not changing, but we want to try to offer some hope on this week's Live in the Bream in the middle of all of the images that you are seeing on your TV screens, on your social media feeds. Uh, And we're going to do that by talking with Jenny Yang. She's the vice president for advocacy and policy at World Relief, a group that works all over the globe, trying to help people in their most dire situations. We're seeing that in multiple places. So let's talk with Jenny about what they're doing and maybe how you can help too. Jenny, welcome. Thanks so much, Shannon, for having me. I look forward to this conversation. So let's start with Afghanistan because that's where a lot of hearts and minds are focused right now. There is a ticking clock to get people out of there. There are Americans, there are people who have worked to help and protect and fight alongside Americans. There are their families. What is the current situation as it pertains to you guys and what you can possibly do? Sure. So World Relief, uh, we are one of the nine refugee resettlement agencies in the United States, which means that we are right now on the front lines of advocating for a full evacuation of the Afghans that are at risk right now. And then the agency that in the United States is receiving them and helping them resettle into various communities across the U.S. Um, It's been really concerning because not only do we feel like the evacuation was poorly handled, but we have everyday vulnerable Afghans we're talking with who still have not been able to access the airport. And these are not Mm -hmm. Afghans. These are U.S. citizens and green card holders. Um, But on top of that, we also have had several communications from Afghan translators and others who literally risked their lives uh, to support our U.S. mission there who still have not been able to get into the airport. So our concern right now is that with a drawdown of U.S. troops still committed for August 31st, that it seems like with the ongoing flights that unless something happens miraculously where we're able to increase capacity um, that many individuals we believe will be left behind. Now, these are individuals who have already had threats on their life because of their association with the U.S. Um, The veteran community has actually been the most vocally supportive of these Afghan allies being evacuated. And so we're working hand in hand with them. And many of the cases we've been able to get evacuated are individuals for whom we've had specific um, escorts to get them into the airport. But many others without those resources uh, right now are still unable to get access. So our concern right now is a full evacuation. And even if that means um, having ongoing operations after August 31st, that is our main ask for the president. Um, But we're also trying to mobilize churches in the U.S. and other communities to welcome them once they're here. Uh, We've had news from the State Department on Friday um, that they are going to evacuate around 50,000 Afghans to the United States. Uh, over the next few weeks. And we've had an outpouring of support from volunteers, a lot of churches and others who are really ready to put up housing and others to welcome these Afghan refugees. And so we're working with them um, and making sure the Afghans have what their needs are, um, have their needs met when they arrive as well. It's got to be so disconcerting, even if you know you're trying to leave the Taliban and the threats on your life to come to a whole new country with your children, with your babies, whatever you've been able to grab. And if you're one of the lucky ones who makes it through the checkpoints, gets to the Kabul airport, gets on that plane, you're still leaving behind everything that you've known, basically. So I got to say here in the D.C. area, when they started um, bringing folks in and processing them through a local community college, 
you know, my husband and I had this impulse, how do we help? What can we do? And I was so glad to see that the volunteer organizations here were actually overwhelmed. And the college mm-hmm. actually said for right this minute, stop bringing because we can't take any more diapers or food or clothes or anything else. I think the American people are so incredibly generous and they want to help. So talk us through what happens when these refugees and the administration says, listen, everybody's going through vetting before they get onto us soil or released into us communities. So what happens for these people once they're here and and how can they be practically helped? Yeah, so that is a great question because a lot of the Afghans that are coming are having to be immediately evacuated, which means that the way to quickly process them after the security vetting is to parole them into the United States. Now, parole is a temporary status that they'll have while they're in the U.S., um, but it does mean that they don't get the traditional benefits that a refugee would, um, and a refugee is someone who has been fully vetted and assured by an agency like Royal Relief. They go through a whole separate system that we have set up as we've been doing the refugee resettlement work for over 40 years. So if an Afghan comes in as a parolee, um, it's incumbent that the public really provide the resources that many of these individuals are going to need because they don't have this specific support system. So um, as you were saying in Northern Virginia, we saw many Afghan families arriving and I was working with some churches over last week um, to provide housing for an Afghan family of 14. Now, many of the families in DC were like, I can't house a group of 14, but <laughs> <Right>. some churches <laughs> some churches banded together and um, monetarily paid for an Airbnb that could accommodate this family. And over the weekend, they actually uh, visited this family, made sure they had hot food and could help them adjust. And mind you, many of these individuals um, can speak English well. They were translators and helped support our U.S. mission. Um, But just obviously being in a new culture uh, in new communities is is very, very, very challenging. And so the communities being welcoming and meeting them at the airport or helping set up housing are really going to be the critical needs we have as they arrive And with the numbers that we're seeing, um, we're going to need all kinds of assistance in the communities where we work. And what about the practical things like healthcare, like food, like education for the kids? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's so much to do to try to get things settled uh, for them. And there is processing. And as you said, they have a weird temporary status for them that leaves them a little bit unstable or maybe unsure of their exact steps for the future, uh, what happens for them. Um, but if people want to get involved, how can they help world relief or other groups, you know, find ways to practically plug in and help these families? Yeah. So I think the first thing we're asking people to do is to see if you can volunteer at your local refugee resettlement agency. So at world relief, we work in 17 communities across the U S and uh, even if World Relief is not present there, you, you can often find another resettlement agency that is always looking for volunteers. And so uh, if you actually go to refugeecouncilusa.org, that's a coalition that we belong to. And they have a map where you can zoom in on your specific city, your community, and see if there's a local resettlement site there and just reach out to them. And many of them have volunteer opportunities. I think the main thing that we're going to be looking for is is housing for these individuals, because um, just in our Sacramento, California office, we have received dozens of Afghan SIVs and housing has been the main challenge. So many of these individuals will need not just short term housing, but long term housing. So families being able to house couples or Afghan families is, is really going to be critical in the short term. The other need we have in general is just around supporting organizations like World Relief because we need to hire staff to serve these Afghans in specialized areas like uh, mental health and trauma healing. 
And so that is the second greatest need that our staff have identified. Many of these Afghans have faced death threats. They've seen family members killed. And when they come here, it's emotional for them and, and they need more assistance. And so having us hire the right staff is going to be important. So donating to organizations like World Relief so we can hire appropriate staff and help with the refugees with more technical needs is going to be very important as well. But the last thing I would say is all of us are stewards of our resources and our finances, but we're also stewards of our influence. And all of us live in a community um, or those of us who live in the United States, we live in a democracy where our voice is very important. And it's important that our values are reflected in the policies of our elected officials. And many governors and senators have been very supportive of these um, Afghans coming in. But I think for there to be ongoing bipartisan political support for Afghans, not just now, but in the long term, is going to be really important as we really try to build and help the Afghans as they come to the United States. And, you know, there are those who are hesitant. And I, I hear from folks who say, oh, we don't know who these people are and there's not a full vetting and there's just not time for it. And could they be bringing threats to the homeland? I mean, I know that those are conversations that a lot of these folks are going to face when they come into communities. And listen, it's it's legit to ask questions about national security and that potential impact. Again, at the White House briefing on the day that we're um, recording this, they said that people are being fully vetted before they get here to the U.S. for potential uh, troublesome connections. But the vast majority of them are people whose lives uh, will be threatened if they stay in Afghanistan. Can you give us sort of a sense of what these people are facing if they don't make it out um, with this timeline uh, bearing down on us. And again, I know you've said, as many others have said, they hope the president will be more flexible with that. But what's the reality on the ground for these folks? Well, I will I will tell you that having communications every day from Afghans that are there right now, that their lives literally are in danger. We have an Afghan pastor whom we were talking with since the Taliban took over Kabul. And in the beginning, he was telling us that he was planning to stay, that he was wanting to stay and, and didn't um, was very uncomfortable and fearful. And it wasn't until a few days ago that he told us that he cannot stay, um, that he's had death threats against him and his family. Um, and actually, we're trying to help him figure out where he should go because um, not only does he feel like the Taliban may follow him, but right now within Afghanistan, many of the countries are closing their borders. And so there's really very limited evacuation routes for the people who are extremely vulnerable. Uh, we've heard from other church leaders. The Christian community in Afghanistan is, is very small, but they're doing amazing work. And the fact that many of them want to leave after feeling like they were called to minister there um, is very troubling. And so if we do not help many of these Christian leaders then there's a devastating impact on the church in Afghanistan and the ability for many of these individuals to, to even just live. And so that's just one example. We also have been getting emails from special immigrant visas. Um, these are individuals who have applied for, for this visa to come because they have served our U.S. military. They literally were to, in toe-to-toe -to -toe combat with our U.S. troops and now uh, their lives are at risk because of their association with the U.S. Actually, one of our staff um, wrote uh, this piece um, online where he said that if it weren't for one of the, the Afghan leaders who's trying to be evacuated now, he literally would not be alive. And he said this, he said, when Khalid put his name on the line on my behalf, he exchanged his reputation for mine. If anything were done against me, he was honor bound to die protecting me. Kala did this on numerous other occasions for me and other Americans. And this idea that these individuals are the ones that we should welcome to the United States, they have proved 
the fact that they were willing to risk everything to support Americans. And uh, I think we will, they will make terrific neighbors when they get here, but they will be, be patriotic Americans as well. And as you mentioned, that when you look at the history of uh, the U.S. refugee settlement program, what we know is that not a single refugee that has been resettled has ever taken the life of an American in a terrorist attack. And we've resettled over 3 million refugees since the start of the program in 1980. And so there's reassurance from the White House that these individuals are vetted. And because many of them were put on evacuation lists from agencies like World Belief, these are individuals that we personally know, that we have vetted for, um, whose stories that we are aware of that we're putting forward to be evacuated. So um, it is our, we, it's fully appropriate for everyone to ask questions about security. We're asking the same questions because we want to make sure that the people who arrive are fully vetted, um, but trusting that the government has done its job and will continue to do a, a good vetting job. I think our role in this is to, to be welcoming and to, to get to know a lot of the Afghans that are coming into our communities. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Can you speak at all to the transitory situation for a lot of these refugees and people who are getting out? They are for now going to third countries before they eventually come to the U.S. is their hope. That's part of the vetting and and part of the, um, you know, just the process of getting people through all of the red tape and, and the procedures they have to do. But, you know, we're hearing disturbing reports about people who are in Qatar and other places where they're just so overwhelmed with human beings that they don't even have basic things that they need, um, that there are real sanitation issues and those kinds of things. Um, is there anything that can be done during that transitory process? Or are we just going to have to, you know, pray for the best um, and, and try to support them when they make it through that and finally here to the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's an ongoing ask that we have of the administration is to make sure that if they're transporting Afghans to third countries, that they're not left in limbo when they're there. And so, for individuals in Qatar, as you were saying, we've also heard similar reports and family members of Afghans in the U.S. who are being transited where they don't know when they're going to leave Qatar. We, um, they've also said that some of the uh, lodging conditions are not adequate, that they're in need of food and water. And so we've asked, uh, made those asks of the administration to make sure that their basic humanitarian needs are being met. I think an ongoing concern that we have is that for many of these individuals that are in various processing um, queues that we just don't know how long it's going to take to process these cases. And so for some of them, they're in the beginning stages. For some of them, they're in the later stages. But no matter how long it takes, we've been urging the U.S. government to make sure that their humanitarian needs are being met. And, uh, And so the U.S. government right now has been trying to get other countries to also receive some of these individuals. So I know Germany has taken a few and some others are also uh, taking some Afghan evacuees, but of critical importance, as you were saying, is when they're in these transit countries to be able to process these cases as quickly as possible. And during that time, providing some basic assistance so they um, don't feel like they're, they're left behind in these communities. I want to make sure that we talk about what's going on in Haiti as well. That's a country that has needed attention a lot over the last couple of decades, and they're reeling from political assassination of their leader, and now yet another destructive earthquake there. And um, we hate to feel that they are not getting the attention they need when they are desperately in need as well. Can you tell us about what you all are able to do there? 
Yeah, so there was a 7.2 magnitude earthquake um, that hit Haiti, and um, it was right at during the same weekend when the Taliban took over Kabul, and so um, it didn't get a lot of attention, but Haiti is right in our own hemisphere. The Haitian community are brothers and sisters right in our own neighborhood across um, the sea, and so this earthquake was actually higher on the Richter scale than the 2010 earthquake, which took the lives of over 200,000 Haitians. Um, and this earthquake really struck the Western peninsula of Haiti. And what we know is that there's a little over 2000 individuals that were uh, killed during this earthquake. Um, but what we also know is that there were over 37,000 homes that were destroyed and 46,000 others that sustained some damages. Uh, World Relief, we actually have uh, Haitian staff on the ground um, in Lakay, which is the area that was quick, quickly hit. And we've actually been working with Haitian pastors who actually mobilized their youth to help World Relief Haiti assess the situation and the needs of the people within the communities. And what they identified was many of these people whose homes were destroyed um, need food packages, hygiene kits, tents, plastic mats, and medical supplies. But in the long term, the survivors are going to need seeds and tools for agriculture, as well as some basic construction materials to help rebuild their homes, schools, and church sanctuaries. And so right now, we actually have Haitian staff on the ground right now um, that is working to meet the immediate needs of the people who are left homeless. And then in the long term, provide them with the tools they'll need for just long-term agricultural development and for rebuilding of critical infrastructure. Um, but I just want to emphasize that in our Haiti response, it's really been the Haitian church that has been leading. They're the ones that have been telling us what their needs are. And especially at a time of political turmoil in the country, earlier uh, in July, the president of Haiti was assassinated and when you have a community that's already, even a decade later, dealing with the impact of an earthquake that killed hundreds of thousands of people to have another one, it just means that we have an ability to meet the needs of our Haitian neighbors, um, to really help them rebuild their homes and to meet their immediate needs. How helpful and important is it to you all to have these church networks, these houses of faith inside uh, the various countries where you try to go help um, to give you that on the ground information about specific needs? Well, our mission at World Relief is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. So if we are in a community and you don't see our sign on the wall, that's exactly what we want, because we want the people to see the church. So if pastors are leading their communities, if they're the ones that are doing the needs assessment and telling us what they need, we believe that we have done our job well. So local church pastor networks in every area that we work is absolutely critical to the work that we do. So whether it's Haitian pastors that are responding to local needs, or whether it's a group of pastors in Dallas, Texas that are banding together to welcome Afghan refugees, which we know is happening now, just to be able to see the church in action is exactly what we want to see. And so I believe that the crisis in, in Afghanistan and in Haiti are the crises that will define our generation the fact that in Afghanistan, we had a 20-year conflict where it was the longest running conflict in U.S. history means that we have a more obligation to help the Afghans there. And I think with Haiti, when we understand just the devastating humanitarian impact of natural disasters on an island country that's just south of the United States, um, especially when we understand how vibrant the Haitian church is, I think we also have a responsibility to show care and concern for our neighbors that are in Haiti right now as well. And so I think it, it's our general hope that the church in the U.S. will see this as an incredible opportunity to shine a light in some of the darkest places around the world 
and not just with monetary uh, donations, but also with time and service, because the opportunities to do that are very real and very tangible in the U.S. Yeah. And we are called to do that as believers, to be in service and ministry to others. And there are such incredible needs right now. What better time for us to figure out the ways that we can individually do that and collectively too. Um, Again, the group is World Relief. You can get them at worldrelief.org if you want to find out about how you can help. We've been talking with Jenny Yang, who's the vice president for advocacy and policy at World Relief uh, at a time when there are numerous pressing tragedies around the world. Um, Thank you guys for showing up and for, as you said, leaning on those local churches who uh, give us a better picture of what exactly is happening and how we can best help on the ground. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. I I pray and I hope that this will um, get out to folks who then plug in in their local communities and around the world where they can help as well. Great. Thank you so much, Shannon. That is it for this week's Live in the Bream. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.